It's time to get the pen and paper out again. We talk sports psychology, how to evaluate and improve performance and life as well. Hello and welcome to Play, Train, Grow, a podcast that asks what is life really like chasing the dream of becoming a professional footballer? This episode is focused on the grow part of the podcast. And I'm absolutely buzzing to be joined by Alvin Dixon. Alvin has a master's degree in psychology of sport with distinction, which sounds very fancy, Alvin, I have to admit. I need, need to find out about how to get distinction in there. And you do a, a number of other things, including the uh, NHS mental health first aid coach. You've experienced coaching disability sport. You've got your own company um, through Sports Psychology Scotland. So, Alvin, welcome to the podcast. How are you, pal? Well, thanks very much, Johnny. Yeah, absolutely buzzing to be here as well. Looking forward to what we're going to be chatting about. Who knows what directions we're going to end up going in. I have absolutely, even though I've got questions, I still don't know. Even though I've got this bit of paper, it, <laughs> it could genuinely go anywhere and I'm comfortable with that. It's the best way to be. That sounds good. <laughs> absolutely. So I've done a wee intro, but who are you and and what do you love to do and what do you do? Smashing, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a practitioner of sport and exercise psychology, and I'm currently I'm nearing completion of accreditation. So it's just really important to know that once you've done all the academic stuff and you've got your distinctions or whatever, you still have to do your supervised practice. So I'm just coming towards the end of that, but I'm already working across a range of uh, governing bodies, uh, a whole lot of different sports, which is really exciting, really dynamic. Um, what do I love to do outside of of work? I, I've always been into to sport but I guess my other big passion has been music so for a number of years I was involved in, in writing and not quite teaching but doing workshops around music as well and performing so that was a, a huge buzz for me and I guess more recently it's been trying to learn a bit of languages and other cultures along the way so I've been quite religiously following Duolingo throughout lockdown. Adding, adding strings to the bow. That's it yeah I love, love the musical metaphor in there already. <laughs> I wish I meant it. <laughs> so where does your passion come from? Uh, well, I suppose from, from the sport side. When I was originally at uni, I studied psychology, first of all. That was my undergraduate degree. And I just started doing lots of volunteering. And one of the projects that I got involved in and, and stuck with me for a number of years was the disability football team. Originally, I was just going along to help out and then eventually progressed through the coaching badges, did the various committee roles as well. And I think psychology of sport only clicked when I started going to courses and conferences. And suddenly it kind of brought everything to life a bit, especially for the guys with, with learning disabilities that I was working with, because it was almost quite an, an extreme reaction you would see. You know, so you, you see people's reactions to setbacks on a football pitch on television. But when you see it in the disability football setting, it's often a bit more exaggerated. And I was you know, just trying to figure out, well, what can we do to, to help these guys get the most out of sport to allow them to overcome some of these setbacks and challenges as well? So yeah, I was attending those courses, those conferences, like I say, uh, eventually I decided to just take the plunge and I threw myself into doing my master's, uh, so returning to the University of Stirling. And since then I was like, well, this is what I want to do. So I'm now you know, enrolled in this pathway to, to become a fully fledged sport and exercise psychologist, which just takes a few extra years of uh, working with a supervisor and I suppose doing a lot of the, the groundwork to, to making a bit of a name and reputation for yourself. What does the role of the supervisor involve then? I guess it's more of a mentorship than anything. So it's somebody that you can turn to when you're saying, what do I do here? Or if there's something ethical that comes up as well. Originally, it was like, well, you're kind of getting a two for one here because you've got me working with all my enthusiasm and you've got a kind of older head in the background to, to support me as well. But uh, as it goes, and especially the way my supervisor supports me, I'm kind of making my own tracks just now, which is really exciting. Oh, that's interesting. So at the moment, what's life like? We're in the, at the end of lockdown. So how has it changed and what does it look like? Yeah, so a lot of what I've been doing over the past year has been working, again, with governing bodies across different sports who are trying to keep people engaged, trying to give them something. 
I guess the nice way of putting it is this is the opportunity to really work on the mental side of of performance. So we've been doing a lot of workshops around you know mindfulness, around different strategies, different approaches. On top of that, working one to one, obviously with athletes, especially ones who are maybe using this as a time to reflect, maybe struggling with with lacks of motivation or, or just uncertainty that's uh, happening around us just now. So really looking forward to hopefully coming out of this current phase and kind of building on those foundations that we've been been working on. You know, a lot of athletes just come into terms with, you know, okay, sport is a massive part of my life and I've, I've been lacking it for the past year. Now it's going to come back in. So it's just trying to prepare them for that and hopefully they'll feel you know more equipped and prepared than ever to, to get back to training and competition. It's definitely been a difficult, you know, time. There's no doubt about that. So, is and you, you said there, is mo- motivation and uncertainty are they the two real keys that have come out of this last sort of year of COVID? Yeah, that sounds almost like it's quite negative, but I think a lot of people have been really proactive with using the time wisely and focusing on areas that they they maybe haven't been able to really throw themselves into before. Even little things, you know, like S and C work, you know, you get. Lots of athletes are really dedicated into that this past year. And like I say, a lot of teams and individuals have been quite enthusiastic to work on the mental side of it. You know, now is the opportunity to, to start bringing in elements of sports psychology into their, their training, into their programs. So it's great to be a part of that too. It's a really interesting point. It's a, a time to reevaluate and maybe reset targets that maybe haven't been looked at in the past. Yeah, 100%. I think reflection is something which I, I preach a lot of for athletes and there's absolutely been no better opportunity than the past year to think about, yeah, you know, what direction am I going into? Uh, how much does sport mean to me? What have been some of the issues that I can try and iron out at this time? I think meaning is really important. You know, we, we wouldn't take part in sport if it didn't mean something to us. And that's, you know, across the from the professional footballers down to the people just having a, a kickabout on five sides every week, you know, it has a meaning. It is important to us. So now is an opportunity to, to kind of find out a bit more about that. Why, why does it make us tick? Yeah. And what's the best things about your role then? What, what do you enjoy the most? <laughs> I guess it's, it's a fact that it's, it's totally unpredictable. Nothing is ever the same. No two workshops are going to have exactly the same discussions that come up. And I really enjoy that. And actually I really enjoy the, the challenge element. I like going into a room, especially a room of, professional or semi-professional footballers you know they've probably already made their mind up whether they're going to like what I say or not but I love going into that challenge of trying to pull them over this old saying of like a third of the room will will get you a third of the room are there to be convinced and a third will not be convinced so I I don't know I just I like uh, I like trying to dispel some of the myths to try and make people open up a bit and at the end of the day if if everyone leaves with one thing like one new idea or one new concept that we didn't have beforehand brilliant so yeah i like i like throwing myself into these challenging environments and learning about new sports as well there's certainly there's sports that are kind of getting in touch with me and i know nothing about them but I do my work, so I do my research into it, and that's absolutely fascinating. You know, learning about the demands of sports, which I've not even, you know, I've barely seen or certainly not been able to play or take part in before. So that's really exciting too. Right, and what's your what's your sort of best achievement so far? If if I was to ask you for your like top two or top three, what comes to mind? Uh, it's really hard to to kind of go into specifics here. I think for anyone involved in the team behind the team you know you look for a performance improvement and you want to think all right that must be that must be down to me but I think it's really important to stay grounded and remind yourself that we are just psychology is one cog and you know a huge performance machine so you know I think it's a really significant and important part but you know it's not to say that I am the cause of of everything that happens on the field or, or in the hall or whatever I guess on a more personal level, I recently reconnected with somebody who must have been in one of my very first workshops, so a few years ago now. And, you know, looking back, it probably was not that great a workshop, but it was really nice for them to to reach out and connect over social media. 
bit unexpected and it was really interesting to hear how obviously some of the ideas had stuck with them and were beginning to shape their own future directions so that was really really nice totally unexpected but uh, a really a nice kind of story to, to take away from what we've been doing over these years and you need these little things from the kind of my coaching perspective it's seeing somebody pop up on the telly they've scored or seeing their name being mentioned because Often the work I do with young kids is delayed gratification. I imagine it's somewhat the same with yourself, that you're going to have to wait to actually see what comes out of the work you do. Yeah, I think there's also a strange concept of you work towards your own redundancy. You know, you don't want athletes to be dependent on you. You know, I'd I'd love to maybe be working with a team for, for 40 years or working with an athlete, you know, throughout their entire career. But actually, I think success is getting to a point where they don't need me anymore because they've they've taken enough to kind of get them started on that journey so you know like I say working on things like reflection if they learn how to reflect in an efficient way if they learn how to overcome setbacks and challenges and and create their own strategies moving forward brilliant so yeah it's kind of you need to give yourself a pat on the back when you reach that point and an athlete or a footballer or whatever is saying actually I don't need to work with you anymore I've I know where I'm going from here. Yes, it's a great point, that. And uh, doing yourself at a job is such a great slogan to have. It, it is. I know. I don't know if it would fit on a business card. I haven't tried that yet, but uh, maybe that's the way we should be going. <laughs> Why not? So describe your style. Um, how how do you think you are around athletes or anyone you work with? Yeah, um, style. Oh, I guess thinking about workshops, like working with teams and groups just now, I'd like to think that I come across really passionate and also really authentic in, in those environments. That's what I'd like people to take from it. I don't like to think of myself as motivational because for me, motivation is something which always comes from within. It's not something you can like inject people with. So yeah, I, I just, I like people to kind of think, well, he's not putting on a show, but he is performing to us almost. That's something which I'd like people to take from workshops. Uh, when working like one-to-one -one with people, I'd like to think, I, again, I come across quite genuine and I'm really open and, and honest. So yeah, again, style, I, when I first meet an athlete or first work with a team, I do like to say, you know, psychology is not all about thinking positively. It's not all about like working on basic mental skills. Rather, it's it's about kind of accepting and appreciating some of the ups and downs that come with with sport and just being ready to to deal with them. It's a bit like what we'd said earlier, Johnny. You know, psychologist, I think it carries with it a bit of an assumption that you're there to fix problems or you know present solutions all the time. I think it's a lot more complex than that. And, you know, first of all, we need to get people understanding that sport psychology is there as a proactive support mechanism, if you like. It's there for, for teams and individuals at any stage in their journey, not just when the wheels are about to fall off. And it's not about being prescriptive either. I, I like to work on empowering people. Like we say, it's like you work towards your own redundancy. You know, I want people to, to get loads from working with me but also feeling empowered that they get to a point where they can start moving forward themselves too. So yeah, hopefully that kind of de describes a bit of it. Um, I guess my focus is often on the relationship with the stuff that shows up. So when we're thinking about, I don't know, difficult thoughts or, you know, perceptions of challenge or emotions and feelings, you know, all that unwanted stuff that shows up, my emphasis is on the relationship we have with those experiences rather than the situation. Because you can't often change a situation. You know, if your team's 3-0 down at half time, you know, you're going to be feeling a little bit rotten about that. But you can't do too much about that fact. But what you can do is try and maybe deal with your own reaction to it and try and make a more useful and, and positive contribution moving forward. Hopefully that makes sense anyway. No, I just love putting people on the spot. That's all. <laughs> Kids, I like it. It's just in that, that awkward question because it's the same when I get asked, you know, what are you like as a coach? And you sit there and go and, the, you know, the brain just empties. Every thought disappears. <laughs> this blank of, eh, I, oh. So, no, it's nice just to get that bit over. So what I'm going to do now is throw some terms at you <laughs> or a word and sure. just your thoughts on it, whether it's a bit of myth-busting, whether it's a bit of explaining it. So I'll start off with neuroplasticity. It's a word thrown out there all the time. What comes to mind with that phrase or word, I should say? 
Excellent. That sounds like you've been watching too much countdown or, or you've been kind of getting your Scrabble game up as a, as a cracker. Neuroplasticity, it's even hard to say. I think it's kind of phrase where different professionals will have different interpretations. I suppose to me, what comes to mind is, you know, our brains are organic and they're always changing and adapting. And I suppose what that means to me is there's always an opportunity to to grow and to learn and to strengthen certain neural networks. Now, I don't want to go too much into that because I'm, I'm venturing out of my own uh, territory, I guess. But for me, if we know that our brain can adapt and our brain can continue to grow and to, to again, strengthen certain connections, then that you know should help us feel like we can learn, we can adapt to other situations as they come up as well. Right, so words when I hear the word neuroplasticity, the, the main words that come to my mind are myelination, myelin being yeah. the piece in the brain that wraps all the neurons, increases the speed of connections, and then that should in yep. turn lead to mastery and automaticity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going back to like higher human biology for me there, but I definitely. And I think, again, if, if we can understand how our brain works, then that should allow us to think, okay, well, if our brains are able to learn things in the same way that our muscles are able to to improve, then you know there's training that we can do for both these things. Love it. So next one up, emotional intelligence. Yeah, I think a lot of people assume that emotional intelligence is all about reading other people, but actually, in terms of understanding emotions, I think we've got a lot to do at home first. I think we need to be a bit more emotionally intelligent of ourselves before we can start understanding other people. And I suppose to try and explain it a bit more, we can be really judgmental when certain emotions show up for ourselves. You know, if if you start noticing experiences of frustration or, or anger or, or sadness, then we can be our own worst critics and we can be like, oh, you shouldn't be feeling that way. And, and we can end up getting into a bit of a, a conflict around our emotions. So I think it's like a lot of things, we need to start better understanding our own emotions before we can start understanding, I suppose, how other people are coming to terms with, with their emotions. Hopefully that one makes sense. Absolutely. So now for the next one at you being psychological safety, because that's often, or I'd say actually it's quite a buzzword at the moment. It seems to be at the forefront of a lot of chat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think with all buzzwords, it's about understanding that people have probably got lots of different interpretations and, and different meanings associated with it. Psychological safety, I, I think it's, for me, I'm thinking of duty of care and, and how important it is to have a, an environment that promotes psychological safety, especially for coaching, especially for coaching younger or, or vulnerable uh, athletes. So it's something which is, I suppose, part of a culture. It's something where we need to have protocols and things in place to make sure that you know, we're moving away from the bad stuff of sport. You know, we're moving away from from bullying, from hierarchies, from hazing and initiations, and we're creating environments where people are able to express themselves. The great frustration is that when people can express themselves through sport, that tends to lead to the best performances, the ones that, you know, stick in our memory. Um, unfortunately, I think especially with football, there's a bit of a culture of the kind of hard man and, and those kind of attitudes, masculinity even, um, they tend to perpetuate a bit more and that can maybe reduce the psychological safety in certain environments. What do you think, Johnny? For me, it's trust. And when mm-hmm. I try and build this in my my coaching groups with the squads and all the individuals I work with, I need them to know that no matter what they do, whether it's phenomenal or whether it's the biggest mistake in the world, they're going to get the same me. Yeah. And if I can, if I can create that and the, the young lad or the young adult that I'm working with knows that I can push the boundary. I can make any mistake. I can ask any question and I'll get the same person coming back. That for me and my little shell is what I focus on when it comes to trying to get, you know, a safe environment. Yeah, and I guess as a coach, the more that you model and present that, then hopefully it filters through the rest of the team as well. And that's something which can get carried forward. So you're not going to get people, as you say, criticizing one another for making a mistake or or blaming each other or, or kind of, you know, shucking off responsibility. So, yeah, and again, just it, what you've said kind of underpins how important the coach is for 
setting, the tone of, of team training settings and, and of sport. Yeah, so we'll, we've already mentioned that, but that leads us somewhat into building or embedding a culture. So what else comes mm-hmm. to mind when I ask you about creating a culture or embedding it? Yeah, for me, there's a saying relating to communication, which is along the lines of the worst part of communication is the assumption that it has taken place. And I think it's the same for creating a culture. When we assume that a culture has been created, but we don't ask the players or the athletes what that means to them, I think that's where we get into sticky situations. Now, when I'm working with either with teams or with individuals, I like to start on personal values or team values and there's a whole load of amazing activities and exercises you can do to tease that out and make it a really collaborative process which is great and then you get you know the words written up in the dressing room we see those photographs of you know famous stadia where they've got mottos you know plastered all over the place and you know that's that's fine but then i think there's an assumption that that's enough to create a culture and actually what i think needs to happen is we need to start doing two things one is mapping behaviors controllable behaviors that relate to those values okay if honesty is something which we value in our team what are some of the little things that we can all do at any time to help live that value and what can we do when things aren't going well to bring us back to that value i think you know the other part is evaluating our successes against our our mantras and our our cultures as well again it's really easy to think right okay we i don't know we won that match two one but what we need to be doing is again bringing that back to yeah. But did we did we live? Did we demonstrate what it means to be this particular team? You know, is is respect part of our game? And if so, we need to evaluate that performance against respect. And that might sound like a bit of a waste of time, or well, you know, we won the game, so what? But I think that's the kind of stuff we need to do to start really moving forward and building on successes as well as coming to terms with setbacks. Yeah, the, what I'm getting here is with the behaviours part is you try and detach personality or ego from an individual, whether it's an individual or a group setting, and it's those sort of non-negotiable behaviours that are the key. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, ego is a really an interesting phrase because, again, there's a bit of a connotation that an ego is always going to be bad. That's always going to be the disruptive person. There's, there's so many roles in sport. I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like a, a TV show or theater, isn't it? You know, there's, there's so many roles that people find themselves falling into. Some people almost by default become the egocentric one, whereas someone else becomes the joker and, and, and so on. So, I, I mean, it's really fascinating those dynamics. If we can still try and get even a really diverse group to be able to live and breathe the, the behaviors that are expected of that team, and that certainly helps creating a culture, I would say. Yeah, and I want to link that into maybe comfort zone and having individuals who are comfortable inside their own and trying to drag them out and others are quite happy just jumping outside of it. Yeah, I I could go off on loads of tangents to comfort zones. I I guess to try and be be controversial, the question back is, is a comfort zone a good place to be in? And the answer is usually no, because if you want to progress, you need to step outside of your comfort zone. I think a lot of people are, are appreciative of that point. Now, you need to push yourself away from that. But there's so many other things. I mean, it's easy to say, right, if you, you know, if I was speaking to, I don't know, 14-year-old Johnny in a football academy, I'm like, right, you need to step outside your comfort zone. Really easy for me to say. What coaches and psychologists and athletes need to understand, though, is when you, we do come close to that boundary, when we're about to step over that line, that's when a lot of the unwanted stuff will show up. That's when a lot of the doubt will begin to creep in, the anxiety, the worry, the the behaviours, we might start seeing, you know, kind of withdrawal, we might start seeing even aggression, you know, we'll see a whole cloud of things beginning to show up. What I like to try and do is, is take an approach of when we're feeling these things, it probably means we're heading close to something really important. You know, anxiety in itself, we think of it as, as a bad thing. We think of nerves as something which need to be controlled. Nerves tend to only show up when we're facing a momentous occasion, when we're facing something which is important to us, when we're in touching distance of, of making a real leap or making some real progress. So again, it's, it's trying to get rid of that judgment of our own emotions, as I mentioned earlier. And I think if we can try to, to be almost kinder to ourselves and be more open to the emotions and the thoughts that show up, then 
I think that makes it easier for people to start stepping outside of our comfort zone. That's interesting. Quite. If I can link this back to the kind of the safety, I quite like trying to read mm-hmm. and failure. So I'll often ask, who's going to be the first one to make a mistake today? So straight yeah. out there, the focus is let's make a mistake. But the question is then, what would you do next time? So the whole group gets involved in looking to make the mistake. And I think, mm-hmm. I think jumping out of their comfort zone means a huge, big change. In football terms, it might just be if you're standing on the right-hand side of the box, move to the left-hand side of the box. So it doesn't have to be this mm-hmm. huge jump. And I know this is a podcast, so it's very hard to see the visuals, but how I describe it is if you just kind of interlink your fingers together and squeeze really hard, so your two hands mm-hmm. are clasped, and then you put your fingers together again, but clasp them the opposite way and squeeze really hard, that strange difference is you simply moving mm-hmm. out of the comfort zone. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, we could probably spend the whole session talking about it. I think there's also an element of, you know, with team sports like football, we need to be, be appreciative of the comfort zone that exists in our interactions with each other. And for some players, that might be, you know, stepping up and being the leader. And as a leader, you'll possibly need to leave your comfort zone to be accountable to, you know, look after the, the new kid that's arrived. There's lots of little things that we can do on a social level, which means leaving our comfort zone too and you know, maybe shaking off a bit of a reputation in order to open up and and help our teammates out as well. Yeah, I think in terms of, I mean, if you're looking for a little bit of advice from the football side of it, there's always going to be one or two um, individuals in the group that are happy being what you've sort of termed as the leader, the guy that's going to try things. Mm-hmm. He is just to communicate through them and if they continue to do that, that will relax the rest of the group and should then promote some sort of learning and definitely improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely. When, when I'm linking this to, to kind of learning, what comes to you if I'm mentioning autopilot and like focused thinking during practice? Yeah, uh, during practice. Uh, when, when I hear autopilot, it, it reminds me of why I really like to integrate mindfulness into a lot of what I do. Now, Again, as soon as you say mindfulness, a lot of footballers in particular, a lot of team sport players will, will switch off because they, they have this connotation of incense sticks and, and whale music and all the other stereotypes that show up. For me, mindfulness is being in the present moment. It's being in contact with the present moment, being fully aware. And when you start asking people, okay, what was your best ever performance they will start saying oh well I was just totally absorbed in the moment and for me that's a really good starting point because we often find ourselves on a a form of kind of dull autopilot when we're just going through the motions with things we're not appreciating kind of you know the experience that we've got our mind is perhaps wandering it's floating between the, the past and the future all over the place I think that's where being an autopilot can be really uh, difficult I think the other risk with being on autopilot in practice or in, in a com- competitive situation is that it is not too easy to quickly switch out of. And that's we're moving on the subtle distinction between being in the present moment where things might feel like they're coming automatically and just being on autopilot. Because I think if you're in the present moment, you might be feeling an effortlessness, this, this kind of flow experience, but that allows you to adapt really quickly. Whereas if you're on autopilot and you're kind of going through the motions and you're maybe not taking everything in, then if something unexpected happens, it's probably going to hit you with a bit of a bump back to to reality. So that's kind of what comes to my mind. Focused thinking as well. I guess when I think of focus, the first thing that comes to my mind is the difficulty we have with distractions. And there's nothing worse than seeing someone try to deal with, with their distractions in, a, in practice or in a competitive environment. And it's the same with a lot of human nature in general. If we try not to think about something, if we try to ignore or, or to not notice something going on around us, then we're instantly becoming more aware of it at the same time. So we need to try and allow focus and focused thinking, like you say, to, to occur quite naturally and not try to force it too much, if that makes sense. No, it does. And kind of from my perspective is is within sessions, it's impossible to focus through an entire session, just like a game. It's it's Mm -hmm. genuinely impossible, really, in a team sport especially, to focus all the way through it. So being able to pick your moments are probably quite uh, important. 
is that something you you work with? Is it about um, picking your moment to be focused or creating signals for focus? I think you make a really good point where we can't be at that like 100% zen-like status all the time. So again, with mindfulness, it's like saying to, to players, look, you know, where do you want to be? Do you want to be thinking in the past and, and ruminating or, or replaying mistakes? Do you want to be thinking in the future and, and having all these worries and doubts about what's going to happen next? No, you want to be in the present moment. However, you're not going to be able to stay there for the full duration of a match. You know, American football is one sport I've been working with recently. Those matches are incredibly long. What matters is being able to try and ground yourself and get into that, that present moment status when you've got plays coming up, when you know that you're going to be on the pitch. And it's not ever going to be as simple as just flicking a switch, but it is about appreciating that we're all going to have our mind wander. I mean, Johnny, your mind's probably been wandering whilst I've been like chattering on throughout this podcast. That's fine. We need to be kind to ourselves when we notice our attention beginning to stray and then just kind of gently return it to what we're trying to be focused on. Yeah, I like that. And from from me sitting here with the podcast, you're right. I've I've realized doing this that you're going to look in other directions, you're going to look to things. So what I've actually started doing is putting sheets of paper around me so that when I do maybe look to the right to get a drink. I'll see a phrase or a sentence that brings me like back into the practice, uh, back into the conversation. So I'm at the moment just developing and or fig- trying to figure out these tiny little wee skills to bring me back into into the podcast. So it's a great point to make, and I like to talk as well about here um, blame and accountability because we've moved through comfort zones and into practice and into learning and performance. So what comes to mind when I talk to you about blame versus accountability or blame versus responsibility, depending on how you see it? <laughs> yeah, it's, again, a really good good point. I think we, we touched on it with one of the questions earlier. This kind of question came up recently with a team I was doing workshops for as well. And we got into quite a deep discussion about it. For me, accountability, or for me, blame is one of these little strategies that our mind will use to keep us in the comfort zone. At the end of the day, our mind's primary function is to try and keep us safe. It will interpret the world in ways that are very negative, and it will try to direct our behaviors to stay in comfort zones, to stay safe and, and avoid risks. And unfortunately, sometimes you need to kind of push through that. Blaming and not taking accountability for our own actions or decisions is a really good way of keeping us in that way comfort zone because there's going to be all these emotions that show up when we start stepping outside of that zone and you know even something as simple as putting your arm up on a pitch and acknowledging that you made a mistake that your man got away from you at the corner whatever that can be really powerful to the rest of the team but how does it feel the first time you put your hand up or you say sorry lads well that's that doesn't feel feel good so our mind's telling us not to bother doing that that's too uncomfortable we need to stay stay well clear of it obviously like with the comfort zone stuff it's a great opportunity for us to move into true growth and learning so i'm just reminded you know when we were talking about this with the team that i was mentioning earlier you know we had a really nice discussion about how essentially blame is a great way of avoiding some of those experiences some of those different kind of emotions that show up even that bit of like self-preservation you know by blaming other people we are we're maintaining this, this perception that we are kind of better than them or or that you know we are not capable of making those mistakes and that's great in the short term you know that that'll get you through a season or whatever in the long term, it's probably not going to rub off well with your coach, with your teammates, and it's probably going to hold you back from progressing. Because if you spend the whole season not taking accountability, not taking responsibility for your own actions or inactions, you know, how's that going to improve you as an athlete? Absolutely not. Yeah, this is another thing you could probably spend an hour talking about. And as you get older, as you go through maturation, as you go through teenage years, this all changes. And I think the key on this part is just to constantly recognize it. And how I talk to my players about it is, is when you're on the pitch and playing, is everyone's got their own balloon. And every time mm-hmm. you talk to them, you're either going to fill that up or you're going to let the air out. And sometimes you're going to burst it. So how long is it going to take? Because you don't get another balloon. You need to get the tape out. You need to stick that balloon all back together again and then start trying to pump it back up. And just in that terms of a one-off performance, yeah, it's such an interesting, yeah, it's such an interesting subject. Is there anything that you would advise people to kind of create a list of what I would blame, and then 
putting a, an association towards it or any strategies that you've used with any teams about shifting the word blame and moving it to accountability? Well, yeah, I, I think to us, everything we've spoken about, you know, creating a culture, um, moving out of comfort zone, it's all interconnected. Again, I, I'd probably start with focusing on getting people to notice when that, no, as an individual, notice when that impulse comes of not wanting to take responsibility and start kind of weighing up. Well, you know what? In the short term, right, okay, if I if I don't take responsibility, if I blame someone else in this situation, okay, it might make me feel okay in the short term, but then in the long term, is it taking me towards my team's values? Is it taking towards the kind of player athlete that I want to be? More often than not, the answer would be no. And it's understanding that in order to achieve some of the long-term growth that we want, we're going to have to experience some of that discomfort of taking accountability. So that's usually the kind of lines that I would work with somebody on. Yeah, so sort of in terms of like the mental skills as well on this, um, terms like goal setting and coping strategies are quite regularly put out there. What's, how do you use goal setting and, and how do you create a coping strategy? <laughs> yeah, the, the kind of traditional mental skills of things like imagery, self-talk, um, as you say, goal setting as well. They are the kind of bread and butter of sports psychologists. And they definitely have their place. But it doesn't tend to be the first thing that I would wheel out when working with a, a team or an individual anymore because I'd probably start talking a bit about their values. Even if it was just yourself as an athlete and me, the first session we'd probably try to find out a bit about, okay, well, what... Johnny, as a, an aspiring footballer, what is important to you? Who is important to you? And what is the direction you're trying to move in? And from there, it would be encouraging you to start noticing and becoming more aware of your automatic responses to, to setbacks or situations, noticing more about the little stories or words that your mind feeds you. And I think only once you've properly built up those kind of foundations should you start bringing in the mental skills? And I think if you if you don't follow that kind of process, then we're dealing with something being a bit of a kind of elastoplast, you know, it might work and then it might fall off a little bit later. What we're wanting to do is really try and, you know, build from the ground up. And again, that's what I've been doing a bit of during lockdown before we start introducing mental skills. So we know why we're going to do goal setting. I mean, as I've just said, can you actually properly do goal setting without knowing the values without knowing the direction in life and in sport that you want to move in, I would probably suggest no. Because if if those two paths aren't aligned, then it's going to all fall apart at some point. And again, if you can't reflect on how you deal and how you cope with setbacks, then is it really worth focusing on like imagery and stuff? I, again, I would say no. I think we need to be more aware and then we can start actually constructing really effective strategies and systems to to deal with those yeah like that i'm i'm just trying to think of a way of relating that to to my coaching and quite often what i'll speak to the lads about is is don't use the word sacrifice you have to use the word mm -hmm. investment so what are you investing in and who are the people around you that are sacrificing to help your investment so i always say a 13 14 year old you're not sacrificing anything you're chasing a dream it's your mom, it's your dad, it's your granddad or your teacher or whoever it is in your circle. I think that's the key. And I think that's kind of maybe just to help what you're talking about there to give it a wee focus or a, a better sort of picture from my perspective anyway. Yeah, absolutely. This is really simplified, but especially with younger athletes like footballers of the age you're mentioning there, it is a really good first question is to say, well, you know, okay, who who matters to you? Who is important to you? And yeah, they might say my mates, they might say my mum, whatever. That allows you to then start saying, okay, so so why? What What is it that you want to, to show them? And, and you, then you might start getting them saying things like, I want to show them that I'm brave. Like, okay, so bravery is something which is important to you. So how can we, in this training session tonight, how can we try and demonstrate a bit of bravery? Oh, well, I'll, I'll try something different. Right, great. So in a very brief period of time, we've we've figured out what's important to that you know, teenager, whatever. Um, we've figured out maybe something that they can do in that moment, in that training session, that will help take them towards that. And if they can do that, then the amount of satisfaction that they'll achieve will be brilliant. And that gives them a much clearer pathway to move forward and progress, I would say. 
Yeah, I like that. I'm just going to change it a little bit here, right? And I'm, I'm going to throw this off. Yeah. With everything we've been talking about, I'm going to create a blank athlete for you. So they've got all the physical things you want, all the other characteristics. And what I'm going to let you do is program the brain. So with everything we've talked about, what we've not talked about, what, two, three, four, five things, it's up to you. What would you look to program in there first? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I think we've talked about reflection so far. I think that's a really important one. They need to be able to reflect efficiently. And that isn't about having someone that's constantly thinking and replaying what's happened. It's about knowing you know, there's a good time and a place to reflect. Um, I think related to that is about being open. So you want somebody that's obviously going to be open to feedback from coaches, feedback from their peers, but also you know, open to their own experiences as well. That's, that's a really hard concept, I think, for a lot of people to grasp. But we want someone that's actually going to be prepared to experience a bit of anxiety. We want an athlete that is prepared to experience a bit of disappointment and frustration. Because if we're not open to those, we're going to stay in the comfort zone, right? Somebody who is aware as well. So somebody who is really able to start catching their mind, giving them stories. So if their mind starts telling them, you're not good enough, you're going to lose place in this team, that was a stupid mistake. Why did you do that? Someone that is able to start noticing those thoughts as soon as they start popping up. And also, as I say, value. Somebody that knows what matters to them, that knows kind of the direction they want to move in. And I think once you start getting those kind of ideas together, you you build up something which I would phrase and has been described elsewhere as psychological flexibility. And for me, that's a really important concept because is being flexible that's being able to deal with setbacks being able to deal with unexpected situations that show up and i guess you know you're really good at the metaphors johnny so the one i would play back is if we think of a tree in a storm and we've got a kind of bendy branch that's in the storm we've got a rigid branch in the storm which one's going to break first it's going to be the one that is trying to resist what's happening around it that is you know brittle if you like the one that is flexible, that is bendy, that is almost going with the wind, going with the rain, that's the one that's going to pull through the storm and is going to be stronger for it. So that, for me, is the best way of describing psychological flexibility. No, I love it. Reflection, openness, awareness, and values. I love that. Yeah. So I also want to... There's just some of the building blocks. <laughs> yeah, some of them. There's so many. Where do you start sometimes? I don't know. Um, but I'd also like to, to talk now a little bit about disability sport. I know that you coach and have mm -hmm. coached in disability sport. My full-time mm -hmm. position is working with um, individuals with autism. So I'm also, you know, on a, a daily a daily basis linked with, with disability. So let's just explore a little bit of kind of um, your time in disability sport and the key benefits for individuals and sport or within sport, I should say. Yeah, yeah, great question. I guess the first thing that I'd like to almost get off my chest is from a sports psychology point of view, there is there's some great work that's been done in disability sport and, and para sport, but in a way not nearly enough. I think it's one of these things where maybe when people are going through training, they, they picture themselves working at the elite levels and they maybe overlook some of the really important areas in society where sports psychology can make a massive contribution and there is some some great work and some great researchers who have worked in you know national squads who are you know partially sighted or, or power chair settings so that's all really exciting but we need to do more of that my journey with disability sport like i say it started at university i kind of fell into it almost really enjoyed it um our club was open to, to anyone so it was about you know physical disabilities sensory uh, intellectual or learning disabilities i think mental health pretty much a big one in there as well over the years from a coaching perspective and this is what i'd say to any coaches who are, are even just remotely curious in it it's a fantastic environment to really develop some of the, the core qualities that a coach needs so things like communication until you understand the barriers that people have to communication, it, it, it puts you on the spot and it forces you to, to learn and to really improve how you try and put across instructions and feedback and, and complex ideas. It's also a really great way of learning how to adapt because, I mean, through my journey, the number of times I would set up sessions, have them meticulously planned, and then you just notice that 
it's too hot a day and the guys are not in that zone you have to tear it up and start again you have to think on your feet really quickly so i think it's a really rewarding environment and a really great one to grow as a coach as well um from the benefit of the players it's in- incredibly meaningful and you know from an identity a lot of the guys that, that we would have in our club they would come along and you know without being disingenuous they wouldn't have an awful lot there but they had an opportunity to put on a shirt and feel part of something bigger they had an opportunity to go and represent their region or their country at competitions you know this is something which gave them a huge sense of meaning and it really does illustrate the, the true power of sport but it also encourages them to really grow as individuals as well and they have to learn to be part of a team they have to interact with people they maybe don't like or people who are very different to them they have to you know start showing respect to to the coaches and they have to show respect to one another as well and so there are so many benefits i don't even know that covers half of it johnny but hopefully i get us started on this fascinating topic yeah and sometimes it's an area that can get forgotten about and what sort of barriers have you come across um, from not from the coaching side, but from the individual's perspective mm-hmm. that are, are maybe in the way or that we'd like to break down a little bit? I think cost is obviously one which which comes up. And you know, a lot of people will will complain about the, the price it, it costs for like a young a young kid to be part of a, an effective football program these days. You know, so much sport is unfortunately is getting quite exclusive. Um, there are, however, some great community projects, and I think our club is one of them, which has tried to keep the cost as low as possible to allow people to get regular access to to that team sport environment. So for me, that's probably the one kind of main barrier that, that jumps up, and we can always try and do more of. We can also acknowledge that we have got a privilege by able being able to just you know play football with our mates whenever we like. That's something which unfortunately some of these populations don't have available for them. I think confidence is another huge one, uh, and again related to that maybe identity. So a lot of people probably don't feel confident in being part of a disability club. They maybe you know have their own stereotypes and their own stigmas about. Oh, I don't know if I want to be associated with with a club that's just for people with disabilities. What, we, what we've discovered and demonstrated is that actually the opportunities available are, are massive. You know, we've had players who've been called up for, for trials with some of the national squads. We've had players who have represented um, Great Britain at Special Olympics events, global ones, so going off to, to the United States. So there's, there's a lot which, which comes from it. And we've tried to model ourselves and it's just being a regular football club it just so happens that everyone who participates has got a disability of some kind so it's not like you're going to get a special treatment you're going to be treated like a human being first and foremost so you're going to have to be prepared for a bit of banter and getting a bit of stick from the other players and from the coaches so you know i hope some of that kind of shows people that a disability club is not you're not going to get wrapped in cotton wool you're not going to be hopefully not going to be like doing the same drills for a whole year. It's a dynamic environment and it might start opening the door to lots of other exciting opportunities for people as well. Yeah, there's loads of opportunities out there and I think there's it's unfortunate, but there is still a stigma that is floating around and it's definitely mm-hmm. something that we have to try and, uh, and get rid of. And where I live in, in Aloha, there's, you know, we're the centre for, for Scottish Autism, the organisation I work for, and I feel mm-hmm. like in the community there's a far better understanding of it. But there's definitely still a lot of areas that need to be opened up, and the eliteness that you're, you're referencing earlier is is certainly part of that. But there are loads of great individuals out there. What is it, your club again? So our club's the Stirling City All-Stars, but they've We've merged with uh, another successful local club called Milton. So we're the, I think, Milton and Sterling All-Stars now. Um, so it's great to be part of a, a bigger club identity as well, because that means that, again, it's not like we're this isolated little bubble. You know, the, the players are are part of something bigger. So uh, that, I think that's, again, really important that we don't just keep it kind of shunned off to the side. It's been really good seeing some of the SPFL clubs begin to kind of dabble in, again, power chair or, or para football and allowing the, the players to wear the same tops as the guys that they might watch on a Saturday you know there's, there's lots of little things that we can do along those lines which can really help kind of just bring things bring things to life and, and increase the visibility for lots of perspectives you know 
visibility for other athletes to think well that looks like fun i want to get involved in that visibility for coaches and volunteers as well who are obviously absolutely fundamental to to all these projects yeah and i always get a great reward from what i do but i can't imagine how amazing it feels for the individuals that i work with for enabling them for empowering them and for allowing them to go on their own journey and, and basically my role is just to try and facilitate more opportunities for them. And that's certainly what you guys are doing as well. And it's it's great to hear. And it's certainly something we need to keep uh, in the forefront of our focus, along with a lot of things with a, a changing world at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, changing world. So it's a good opportunity for us to to really start changing the way that we, we do things and changing the assumptions that we hold. Like you say, I think sport in particular disability sports is a great way of providing people with a sense of, of pride of who they are, allow them to feel part of a, a wider community and to feel independent as well. You know, it's something that when they're on the pitch, they're there by themselves. There's so many benefits to it. Um, let's just hope we can continue to, to build the profile of it and, and get more people involved in, in the kind of fantastic benefits that are available to them. Absolutely. Uh, really well said. So I'm going to finish this up with, with one more question, and it's it's yep. about you. So where are you going to go from now, and where do you see your journey taking you? Yeah, well, that's definitely me put on the spot just now. I, I'm really enjoying, as I said earlier, working with a huge range of sports at the moment. Um, unfortunately, football is one of the things I'm not doing an awful lot in at, at present, which... I find as a as fan, as a supporter of football, a little bit frustrating because there's so much I'd love to just get stuck in with. Um, I'd previously worked with uh, a couple of League One, League Two clubs with, with first team, which is really exciting with a, a national um, program as well. So really hoping to kind of get back into that a little bit. Um, other than that, I'm really looking forward to just actually working with some of the the governing bodies and some of the teams I'm currently engaged with when we get back onto proper competition, you know, almost being on the sidelines or being in, in the workshop spaces with them after gym sessions and stuff. I'm really looking forward to going back in that direction. But I guess kind of on a, a larger scale, it's just kind of building, trying to do more and more of what I'm hopefully what I'm all about, which is, you know, exciting workshops, trying to promote reflection, trying to promote openness, working on values or everything that we've spoken about uh, today, Johnny. So yeah, I'm just hoping to kind of keep, keep building. That's my intention. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Johnny, and best of luck with the rest of the podcast. That's it for another episode. I really want to thank Alvin for coming on. It was a fantastic listen. He helped break down and explain some really important terms in relation to sports psychology. You can catch me on Twitter at PlayTrainGrow. You could email PlayTrainGrow at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate any feedback. If there's any other topics you'd like me to discuss or any other questions you'd like me to ask, To any future guests, please let me know. Thank you and goodbye.